0: amen praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our god forever and ever amen my first thought as i read this is what a sight i mean can you imagine uh what what must john have been thinking as he looked at this scene before him a crowd of people that were so large no one could count. Uh, you, you know, a multitude. And, you know, John being a, a, a Jewish man, and we've just seen the ceiling of the 144,000. But yet John has spent most of his adult life uh, in Ephesus, uh, dealing uh, largely with Gentiles. Like Paul, uh, you know, whose ministry was to the Gentiles and to take the gospel to the Gentiles, John has also been been taking uh, the gospel to the Gentiles in in, in Ephesus. Uh, And so I'm sure it must have warmed John's heart to look out over that crowd and realize that this scene in heaven was not just... 144,000 Jews. But it was also a multitude from from all peoples. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting here it's it it says from every nation, tribe, people and language. And and it was an amount of people that no one could count. It, it you know, John couldn't stand there and count the amount of people he was seeing. It was an overwhelming crowd. John probably saw faces that he had never seen faces like those before. Uh, peoples that John had never encountered. And he sees this scene in heaven, this future scene, where all of these people were there, and, and it, it must have been overwhelming. How many of you have ever traveled... Uh, for like a missions trip or something like that to to another country Ra- raise your hand wow great that's well over half of the people in here isn't it an amazing experience and one of the coolest things about it is the sense of of brotherhood uh and family that you have with people from another another land People who speak a different language, who may look very different than, than you, who dress different than you, who have a completely different culture, but yet in Christ, you're one. And John is looking out over this scene in heaven, and, and it's, it's just a staggering, a staggering scene. No one could count them. Let me read uh, something to you from, from uh, Dr. Page Patterson's commentary, the New American Commentary, about this scene in, in heaven. Uh, I really, I've mentioned this before, but I really like Dr. Patterson's commentary. And I'm going to read actually uh, several times here today from this commentary because I think he does a great job of kind of painting the picture of what we're, we're seeing here says he notes that this multitude comprises people from every nation, tribe, people, and language, and they are standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. John is making the point that this group is ethnically distinct from from the Jews who were sealed in the first part of the chapter, and they are further um, ethnically, tribally, and linguistically diverse from one another, indicating the extent to which the gospel of Jesus Christ has permeated the entire earth. We don't know exactly how that happens or when it happens. Uh, you know, is it during the, the tribulation, that, uh, or will it happen before the tribulation that the gospel will kind of completely permeate the earth? But at some point, you know, the, the, the gospel has spread to all the parts of, of the earth. You know, to, it, it seems strange to us to think that there are any parts of the earth this, to this day that do not have... The gospel, but there still are. There are still many tribes who, at the very least, do not have the gospel in their, in their own language, uh, and so there are still places that have not heard of Christ, and this is an ongoing work uh, that, that, you know, that's been out there uh, for many years from people like Wycliffe Bible Translators and, and New Tribes Missions and, and groups like that, um, trying to translate the the gospel into the language of of these different uh, unreached people groups. But someday, the gospel will reach the entire earth. And there will be people from all over the earth uh, who will be touched by it and, and will come to Christ. And John is seeing them before the throne. Pretty amazing sight. Next thing he, st- he stresses here is that they are wearing white robes. Now, we've seen white robes many times before. White robes are almost always a, a sign of holiness uh, or, or imputed righteousness. Uh, you know, our, our, our robes are washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, and we are going to see he's going to use that phrase here shortly. Uh, so these are believers. They are, are people who, uh, their, their white robes signify the fact that they have Christ's righteousness imputed onto them. Uh, they, they are clean. They are, 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 are God's people. Um, we also see them holding palm branches. It's interesting that we're talking about this uh, as, as we kind of uh, head closer to the spring and we get closer to to uh, the, the, the season leading up to Easter. Uh, one of the most famous, probably the most famous passage in, in at least the New Testament dealing with palm branches is Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Palm branches were used as, as a sign of triumph, of victory, of, of feasting and celebration uh, in the Old Testament. They, they were particularly associated with the Feast of Tabernacles, and they were used often in the Feast of Tabernacles for the idea of, of God, uh, you know, dwelling with his, his people. And we'll actually talk more about that toward, toward the end of that, because that seems to be a lot of the thought here, is, is, is these people are before the presence of God. They are, you know, they are dwelling with God. He, he's made his presence with his people. Uh, and so they are celebrating that fact. They have palm branches uh, to celebrate that. If you remember uh, that scene of Jesus as he as he enters Jerusalem, they not only throw palm branches down on 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 the road in front of him, but they also then hold them over him and wave wave them over him as he as he comes through. And that's that was actually very typical of uh, of like a celebration of of victory. Uh, you, you know, the Old Testament. Recounts several times uh, in, in particular one where where Israel uh, you know kind of defeated the Syrians and and they used palm branches as a celebration uh, of, of victory as they entered back into to the city. So you know these these people, uh, this multitude stands before God and they are clothed in white uh, and they have these palm branches. So this is a celebration. Uh, this is a victory that 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 the blood of the lamb has, Given them white robes, and and they they uh, they have a part of the victory of Christ. Um. Verse ten. They start to cry out in a loud voice, and they say, "Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb." Now, there's a couple interesting things that we see happening here. One is the sense, uh, is the stress that salvation belongs to God. Salvation is God's. It's not done by any effort on our part. Uh, It doesn't belong to us. We are the recipient of it. It belongs to God. He is the one who's accomplished it. He is the one who who brings it to mankind, who makes it possible. Salvation is His. Uh, And and we become the recipients of His grace. Uh, So salvation belongs to God. Uh, The next thing we kind of see here is, is... the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, now the idea of, of, of the one sitting on the throne, uh, it, you know, obviously is, is God the Father. But we see that salvation not only belongs to God the Father, but it also belongs to the Lamb, to Christ. So again, this is kind of a, a, a stress of, of the Trinity, that we only see two parts of it here. Again, let me... Uh, let me read something from Dr. Patterson here about this. Um, but it, it's, it's very often in Scripture, especially, you know, obviously the New Testament, that we see little hints that kind of stress the Trinity. Now, why is that important? Well, it was important in their day because, you know, a lot of, uh, of heresies in the early church uh, kind of focused on, on Jesus Christ. Uh, there, there were heresies that kind of stressed his, his Godhead, but not his humanity. There, there are her- heresies that went the other way, stressed the fact that he was human, but he was not fully God. There were also a lot of heresies in the early church regarding uh, the Holy Spirit. They kind of came a little later than, than Christ, but you know, a lot of the early heresies that tried to attack the church tried to attack the Trinity. Even to this day, you know, there are many people who do not believe in the Trinity. Uh, You know, there there are whole churches. The Unitarian Church, that is the whole purpose behind what a Unitarian is. You know, one, that one God, Jesus and the Holy Spirit, are not God in their eyes. You know, uh, some of the kind of, uh, I I would call them kind of Christian-based cults, that we see out there and and have have grown into kind of popular religions, uh, you know, like Mormonism and the Jehovah's Witnesses, they see Christ uh, not as, as the eternal Son of God. Son of God, yes, but only, you know, because God chose him and picked him and made him the Son of God, but he wasn't the eternal Son of God. And so still to this day, there's a lot of movements that kind of uh, try to, uh, you know, limit the Trinity. So it's very important that the New Testament over and over again emphasizes that both God the Father and Christ the Son are God, that they are one yet two individuals. And in many passages, we see all three. We, uh, we see the Holy Spirit, uh, though here we only see the two. So then it appears that the text proceeds to describe God in two ways. First, as the one who sits on the throne, and second, as the Lamb. Here is, here is one of the important Trinitarian or at least Binitarian statements to be found in the Apocalypse Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, is obviously a reference to the Father. However, salvation also belongs to the Lamb. Uh, And as such, the Lamb is distinguished in some way from the Father. Yet it is clear that John the monotheist has has here depicted both God, uh, the uh, proprietor of salvation. uh, Depicted both as God. And and that God is the proprietor of salvation. So we see even in their worship, the things that they cry out are very targeted. Look at at verses 11-11. 12 it says all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying amen praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever and again he repeats amen you know it's it's interesting that the worship of this multitude of people uh, that, that they ca- kind of cry out here that, that salvation belongs to God, their worship leads to worship on the part of the rest of the host of heaven. And we see the angels and, and the four elders, the, uh, or, or the elders and the four living creatures here start to, to worship God. And it's, it's, it's fascinating because they kind of start out with amen. We don't generally think of amen as something we start with. Amen kind of stresses agreement in something. Uh, you know, that's, that's really kind of what you're doing when you say amen to, your, to something. You are saying, I agree with that. that that's kind of what amen does. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the worship that has just taken place of the multitude, saying that salvation belongs to God uh, and, 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 and the Father and the Lamb, uh, they are saying amen to But then they're going to start to worship themselves. Now, some have taken this as as what is called antiphonal worship. Uh, For those of you who may may have never heard that phrase, it's call and answer. How many of you have ever heard like call and answer singing? Where someone will sing and then another group of people will will sing back uh, an answer to what they said. Or repeat what they said. This is actually a, It's very fairly common in Jewish worship. Uh, I I, may, I think I've related this to you guys earlier in the class, but it's worth saying again. Uh, the Jews had certain pilgrimage feasts. Uh, they they had uh, feasts on their 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 religious calendar of the year there were four spring feasts and there were three uh fall feasts and then some other feasts got added kind of later on like like hanukkah which of course is a winter feast and purim uh which is kind of right at the end of of the winter uh but in in the the feasting of the seven original feasts certain ones were what were called pilgrimage feasts and in a pilgrimage feast, uh, any adult men who were capable of doing it were supposed to go to Jerusalem for that feast. And so on, on, on feast days, Jerusalems would, would swell in population. Uh, some people, you know, and these are only estimates, people don't really know, but some people have estimated that there may be as many as a million people in, in Jerusalem on, on, you know, one of these feasts. And then people would leave and go back to their, to their homes. It's exactly what you see happening on Pentecost. Pentecost, or, or what they call the Feast of Weeks, was a feast, uh, a pilgrimage feast. It's one of the reasons that when the, the disciples uh, started to speak and, and, and everybody heard the, you know, them speaking in, in their own languages, it was why there were so many languages there, because people were coming from all over you know, the world of that time for the feast. And generally what would happen is then the people would go home, uh, you know, back to their, to their own lands. Remember, the Jewish people had been scattered all over the world. And so anaphonal singing was a large part of that worship. Uh, you know, I've, I've read kind of stories of what it must have been like as people were walking the, the roads, uh, coming into Jerusalem, and, and the pilgrims would, would be singing, and, and one, you know, they would sing the psalms. And one would sing like one part and then, uh, you know, the uh, others would sing another part. You imagine what that must have sounded like, how beautiful that must have been as people entered into Jerusalem, all these pilgrims from all over the world singing uh, these, these song, psalms to, uh, to God. And so it's very possible that that's what we see here. We don't know that for sure, but that is something that several different commentators, uh, you know, stress that this, this very well may be kind of an antiphonal Uh, song this call and response um kind of another thing that we we see here uh, let let me actually read something about these two amens here again this is kind of unique it's you you see amen a lot in the Bible but you don't see it a lot kind of twice, like bracketing a a, an incident you know once at the beginning and once at at the end Try to help us maybe get a little bit of a, a handle on what is going on here with these amens. So what is offered as praise to, to God begins with the expression, amen. Amen in this case can be interpreted both as a response to the benediction of the multi-ethnic congregation and as an introductory affirmation of what is about to be said in their own benediction. The amen offered by the angels, the elders, and the four living creatures is an affirmation and an agreement with all the, the multi-ethnic congregation has said, but also an exclamation point to their own praise. There follows the, uh, the, uh, the benediction of the elders, the angels, and the four living creatures when they say, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Now, we've talked about this before because we've seen kind of this phrase a couple times in Revelation so far where it's, it's almost like they're trying to exhaust every way you can describe, you know, the, the, the power and the beauty of God. Uh, you know, they kind of just kind of go on and on and on, you know, all these things, uh, attributing all these things uh, to God. Now, the words themselves... Are, are interesting uh, l- let me kind of talk a little bit about what some of these these words here uh, that they use um, one the word praise you know they, they, they kind of start out with 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 that you know praise the word praise is the word that we get eulogy from you know we're actually going to have a, a a funeral here on 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 tuesday for d smithers uh and, and we think of you know funerals having eulogies the word itself you know in, in a simplest sense means to speak well of a person to eulogize means to speak well of them and so when when we use that word praise that it's the same word that we take the word eulogy from praise means to speak well of god to say the correct things about God, to to speak of God in a proper way. You remember the whole way back to the story of Job, um, you know, Job's friends, and I use that term somewhat loosely, uh, and how they dealt with Job, uh, you, you know, God had a real problem with Job's friends, didn't he? But you remember one of the biggest problems that God had with Job's friends? He said, you have spoken of me things that are not so. The biggest issue God had with how they handled Job's situation is the things they told Job about God were not correct. God takes very seriously us understanding who he is and speaking correctly about him. That is praise. That is worship. When we we speak well of God, we are praising him. And that's the the word eulogio, where we get eulogy from. Glory is the the term doxa. Uh, It it means opinion or what one thinks of someone. It's kind of usually a a translation of the Hebrew word kabod, which means honor or weighty. It's it's the things about a person that makes them uh, serious in your eyes worthy in your eyes have you ever heard the 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 term gravitas of a person that that person has real gravitas it means they have real depth to them there's something serious about them they need to be taken seriously that's kind of the idea here that 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 this this term glory means the things about God that ma- that set Him apart and make Him serious, make Him worthy of our worship. The next uh, thing we see here is the is the word wisdom. It's actually Sophia. We have a Sophia sitting here. <laughs> The, the word Sophia is the, is, is the word for wisdom. Uh, wisdom, uh, it, it's funny, it, you know, I didn't really plan this, but we're going to talk about this a little bit also this morning in the, in the sermon. Um, wisdom is, is not just the idea of knowledge, but wisdom is the idea of skilled knowledge, skilled life, being able to take the things that you know and use it to properly live. Uh, it's being they're not just saying here that god has all knowledge they're going beyond that and saying god has all skill uh god is wise he he not only knows things but he knows how those things connect and how those things are used and, and and all the things that that kind of give us the ability to kind of live our lives god has all of those things wisdom comes from him he tells us that, doesn't he? He said, if you, if you need wisdom, we're supposed to ask that, 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 that he gives that to us, gives that freely to us if we only ask for that. That skill of knowing how to handle, not just understanding the, the nuts and bolts of a thing, but knowing how to handle a situation. How many of you have ever found yourself in a situation in life where you really were not too sure? how to handle that situation, how to, how, to, how to move forward. You may have understood the different elements of it, but you still didn't know how to handle it. Well, that idea of, of, of wisdom, of knowing how to, to bring all the, the kind of knowledge that you have to bear on something and knowing how to handle it and live it out, that all comes from God. It belongs to Him. We see here the word thanks. That's the word Eucharist. Today we are celebrating the Lord's Supper, and and, and that is is one of the words that we use for the celebration of of the Lord's Supper, the the Eucharist. We don't always think about that when we do that, do we? But the very term that we use for what we will do today together is the term for thanks. Thanks. It is an act of thanksgiving to God. What did Jesus tell His his disciples, the the apostles? Do this in remembrance of me. Remember what I am doing for you. Remember what I have done for you. Be thankful for what I've accomplished. I want to challenge you today. When we take this strange-looking little cup of stuff that represents our uh, our, our Lord's Supper today, I want you in your mind to think about what Christ has done for you. I, I know a lot of times when we do this, it becomes a, just a routine. It's something that we do. We do it here once a month. We, we do it the, you know, the last Sunday of the month. You know, every church is a little different in how often they do it and when they do it, and even in the way that they do it. But it becomes a routine for us. And I don't know about you, but a lot of times I'm sitting there thinking about either nothing, like nothing is really going through my head at the time that's going on, or there may be a thousand other thoughts. Where am I going to eat lunch at today? Like, you know, am I going to get a nap this afternoon? Like, what, what is, you know, what's going on in my life? But when we take this, that is the, the, the very word we use to describe this is the word for thanks. What we are really to be doing is remembering what Christ has done and being thankful for what he's done. So today when you take that element, I want you to purposefully think of the things Christ has done for you and your need for thanksgiving for what he's done. Again, it's something else we're going to talk about in, in the this, in this sermon to follow, uh, is the importance of thanksgiving. Could someone say about you that you are truly a thankful person? The the New Testament talks over and over about the importance of thanksgiving, but we seem to talk very little about it as God's people. But it's enormously important. So we see this word for thanks here. Then we see the word honor thanks and honor to God honor is that thing about something that makes it rare and valuable that's what honor means it's often used that word was often used uh in 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 kind of the greco-roman world world for precious stones the word we use for honor they would use for rare and valuable stones When you are saying that God is worthy of honor, you're saying he is rare and valuable. He is of great worth. And that's what they're saying here about God in heaven. And the last thing we see is strength and our and, uh, power and strength. Let me uh, again read a note here about that. I thought this was this was interesting because uh they seem like the same thing don't they power and strength isn't that how we usually think about them uh you know so we don't generally di- you know kind of separate separate them it says power and strength dunamis and Ixus. dunamis is the word where dynamite comes from and you guys have probably heard of, heard that before it says, they are similar in their emphasis, but the first seems to denote more the quality of omnipotence, whereas the latter perhaps focuses more on endurance. All these belong to God who remains the same forever and hence always possesses these qualities to the degree of perfection. One kind of stresses his omnipotence, his, his ability to do all that, 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 that can be done. There's nothing that now, now we, uh, I try to always stress this so people understand this because you hear people speak about God's omnipotence sometimes in, in not particularly biblical ways. We say, well, God can do anything. Well, God cannot do anything. God cannot sin. And the Bible's very clear of that. Omnipotence doesn't mean God can do anything because for God to sin would, contradict who he is god cannot contradict himself god can't cease to be he can't make a rock too big for him to move you guys get the point absurdities god cannot do what is not possible based on his own being god you know god can't make a square circle you know, he created the world so squares are squares, circles are circles. He cannot contradict himself or the way he, he made truth to be. So that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about omnipotence. We're talking about God's ability to do anything that is basically possible for him to do that won't contradict who he is. Nothing is impossible for him that does not contradict who he is but the second thing is endurance the fact that and we think of endurance as man you know somebody's gonna go out and run a marathon you know and boy they're gonna look whipped at the end of that man but they got through it now this is more the idea of 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 never changing God doesn't get tired at the end of something but God always is that thing he always has that power uh, that ability to do all possible things. God always has that. It never runs out in him. It, he has endurance in that regard. God has these things, as he stressed, these are, are perfected in God. And so this is what we are what, what these people are saying about God. This is what they're singing about God in heaven. Now let's turn over to verses 13 through 17 the rest of the the chapter here so then one of the elders asked me these in white robes who are they and where did they come from i answered sir you know he said these are they who who have come out of the great tribulation they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes." In the first handful of verses, we see these people and we see their praise, but now the question is asked, who are they? How did they get there? I mean, we know they're a, a, a multi-ethnic multitude of people, but how exactly, what brings them there? What, you know, how exactly have they gotten before the throne of God? It's interesting that, that we see this kind of same device used several times of that one of the elders comes to John and asks him the question, who are these people? But John doesn't know, but yet the elder does. And says, so sometimes when we read that, that gets a little confusing. Like, why would this guy ask John this question? This is what's called a didactic question or, or teaching. Didactic just means to teach. It's interesting, we have a couple teachers here this morning. Sometimes you ask people questions in order to teach them, don't you? You know, and and it's a a common practice. And what, what is being done here, the elder knows John doesn't know the answer to this, but he asked John the question in order to focus John's mind on what he's about to tell him. John may not have asked the question himself, but it's important that the question be asked. And so the elder takes the, the uh, kind of the impetus to go, come to John and, and say, hey, who are these people? John's like, "What? Well, you know, I don't know. And then he begins to tell him, he begins to teach him. It, he, he gives the identity here of these people he says, these are, are those who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's who these people are. Now, unfortunately for us, it doesn't give us any more detail than that. We know that these are people who were living in the, in the great tribulation. We know they've come out of that We know that that it seems that they were saved during the tribulation. They washed their their robes in the blood of the Lamb. But the question that is often asked about these people is, are they martyrs? Are these those who come out of the tribulation uh, in martyrdom? It's possible, but it's not guaranteed. Now, remember what we saw a few weeks ago, what the events of the tribulation will look like, particularly those... The, you know, the, the, the events of the last half of the tribulation. Uh, how terrible things were, are going to be on the earth. It, it, it will be a, 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 a horrendous thing. Uh, you know, n- not many people will survive this. And this probably includes Christians, too. There's no reason to believe that, that the people who get saved during the tribulation, that many of them will not die in the persecutions and also in simply the, the earthquakes and the, you know, the fires and, and, and the, the hurricanes and all the different things that take place during the tri- tribulation without Christ and, and, and were elderly and then, you know, got saved, it's a chance that, that some of them will die during the tribulation. So we don't know if these people are martyrs in particular, and there's nothing in the text that stresses that they are martyrs. Only that they are people who came out of the tribulation and and whose whose, uh, robes were washed in the blood of the Lamb. It's very clear that they are Christians, that they have gotten saved. It seems they probably got saved during the tribulation, but we know their, their deaths came during the tribulation at the very least. So these are, are are people who come out of the tribulation, and, and notice again that phrase that that uh, they're they're you know white robes. They they've been made white by the blood of the lamb. Now this seems like you know it's a beautiful phrase. It's it's a beautiful phrase for what Christ does for us by His blood. If you just took it on a purely physical nature, it would be you know it, it would be so strange. How many of you have ever tried to get blood? out of something something in white in particular it it it, man it blood just does not come out does it but yet these robes are made white by the blood of the lamb it it, it stresses the, the the spiritual nature of what christ has done for us in the shedding of his blood He shed His blood to pay the price for our sins. The the sins that had had dirtied us and and, and made us uh, unacceptable to God. And now, Jesus has paid the price for those sins with His blood. And in doing that, It washes us clean. When that blood is applied to us, when we give our our trust to Jesus Christ, when we put our, our faith in Him, that blood is applied to us and it washes us clean. And now we're clothed in white. It's a beautiful picture. It gives an absolute stress to the importance of the shedding of the blood of Christ. One of the great heresies of our day, and I don't know if you're aware of this, but this is a a fight that goes on within the the larger Christian world. One of the great heresies of our day uh, is is in in the kind of the progressive wing of Christianity, uh, does not believe in the atonement. Well, that's horrible. The whole idea that God would have His Son die that God would punish His Son. That would make God a a child abuser. That's literally what the, the, the argument is. Let me just state very plainly, anyone who does not believe in the atonement and the shed blood of Jesus Christ is not a Christian, no matter what title they want to give themselves. You cannot have yourselves washed from your sins without the blood of Jesus Christ. The atonement of Christ is absolutely essential. And we see yet again, there's many, many times it's stressed throughout the New Testament, but we see yet again here, it says that their their robes are made white by being washed in the blood of the Lamb. Another thing I, I want us to to see here is that in verse fourteen, he, uh, you know, he says, "Sir, you know," and he said, "These are those who have come out of the great tribulation." That that term, uh, you know, used there, the the, the great tribulation. Uh, you know, this is literally; it is the tribulation, the great one. You know, there, there's this stress on on this not just being tribulation, not just being trials, but being the Great One. You know, this is the, the, the tribulation that Jesus spoke of. And if, if you turn real quickly in your Bibles to Matthew 24, and you look at verses 21 and 22, It says, for there will be great distress or great tribulation unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. In those days, had it not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. If you got it, you know, Jesus Himself predicted that there would, come, there would come a day of a great distress or a great tribulation that is unequaled nothing that has ever happened will be as bad as this time nothing that ever will happen will be as bad as this time and as jesus said if he if if the days weren't cut short and what that means is if he didn't limit the amount of time of the tribulation bible tells us it's going to be seven years if he didn't put a limit on it no one would survive No one would survive it. Remember, this is a punishment from God on a wicked world that has fallen away from Him and denied Him. But what's He say for the sake of the elect, for the sake of His own, of His people? He has shortened it. He's put a limit on it. So this is, is, is surely what John is talking about here when he says, the tribulation, the great one. He's thinking back to the time of Christ when Jesus uttered those words. It's amazing because John was sitting there as part of the Olivet Discourse As he's sitting there with Jesus on on the Mount of Olives when he is speaking about the future, and John heard Jesus utter those words himself, and now his mind goes back to those things, and he says, this is the one, the tribulation, the great one. See, the Bible also tells us that in this life we will have troubles. That's that same word, tribulation. In this life you will have troubles. Tribulation. You will have trials. You will have troubles. And everyone sitting in this room understands that. We have all lived it. We've all suffered loss and hurt and disease. We, we, you know, it, it, all of this has touched us at some, in some way. But none of those are the great one. The tribulation that is coming one day upon this earth. And John is stressing, these are the believers who have come out of that. Now, I don't know about you, but that gives me a great sense of peace and a great sense of hope that, is, that knowing that even in the midst of this most horrible time that the world will ever see, what's the scene in front of heaven here? A multitude from all peoples all over the world that no one can count who've gotten saved during that time. I, don't you find that amazing I mean when we think of the tribulation when we think of revelation we don't think of triumph do we we think of all the craziness that happens but at the heart of this all this scene is a triumphant scene these are this is a scene of people before God singing praises people who've gotten saved during that tribulation see even in the midst of his punishment of the wickedness of the world. God uses that to bring about the salvation of multitudes. Multitudes. That's worthy of a couple of amens, isn't it? And that's what we see here in heaven. Look at verses 15 through 17. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes." It's a beautiful few verses, isn't it? Uh, We're doing good on time. You know, in verse 15, we see here that these people will be constantly in the presence of God. How many of you remember what it was like to fall in love with someone? you ever experienced that? could you get enough of that person's presence? Now, maybe you've been married for a long time and you kind of want to get a little distance from one another every once in a while now. But you remember what it was like in those first kind of euphoric days of being in love with another person? when You could not get enough of that person. See, that's kind of the idea here. These are people who love God so much. And when you've given your whole heart to God and you want to be in His presence, these people will never have to leave that. They've suffered all of the things they've suffered in life. They've come out of that great tribulation. They've seen the worst that the world will ever be. And now they're standing before God. And they'll be in his presence forever. That's a beautiful picture. What a promise. You know, it's the complete opposite when you have to be around someone who you just can't stand to be around. Someone who's difficult. Someone who's a trial. Doesn't it make you almost sick in your stomach to be around that person? where the very thought of, oh my gosh, I hope so-and-so's not going to be there. And you'll think about it for days. It'll ruin your whole experience of being there, won't it? It's amazing what we can do to one another. But here there's that opposite side of the coin, that beautiful side of being in the presence of someone who you, you want to spend every moment with. And they will be able to be in the presence of God. It says they, they, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. They are constantly before God. And for every true believer in Jesus Christ, there's no greater place you could ever be. No greater reward you could ever have than that. You know... Uh, well, yeah, uh, we got time. <laughs> Just getting kind of off point a little bit, but it kind of it, it goes with it. I, you know, C.S. Lewis, you, you know, people talk about, uh, you, you know, universe, universal salvation, that, like, you know, God basically saving everyone and kind of forcing people against their will to go to heaven. And, and Lewis used to say about that, you really, you know, God is a loving God. He will not force someone to be in His presence for eternity who could not stand to be in His presence for an hour. People who couldn't stand to walk into a church and worship God for an hour, do you really think God will force them all to be with Him for eternity? How is that an act of a loving God? But these are the ones who want to be in the presence of God, and they will get to be in His presence evermore you notice that they're serving god here it says uh, you know that 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 they serve him day and night now this this word here for serve carries with it not only the idea of of serving someone or working for someone but it carries with it the idea or the thought of worship their service to god is an act of worship you know, that's true of our lives also. Your service to God, whatever it is that you do, and every person is gifted in some way spiritually to serve God. Everyone. If you don't know what that is, then find that. You need to find what that is to know how to serve God because you're gifted for service. Everyone is. You realize when you use the gift that God has given you to serve Him, That's an act of worship. Your service to God is an act of worship. And that is what these people will do before the the throne of God both day and night. They serve Him, and that is an act of their worship of God. Look at the end of that verse. It says... uh, And he who sits in the throne will shelter them with his presence. Now, does anyone have anything else? What do you have? His tent. Perfect. Great. That, what's that? Dwell among them. Awesome. That that is the essence of what this is. Remember I I spoke about tabernacles and, and the waving of the palm leaves? Tabernacles was the celebration of of, of the Jews of the fact that God would dwell with them. It was about his taking them through the wilderness journey and then one day ultimately you know, into their own land uh, and, and, and God would, would dwell with them. They, as a part of the celebration, they build like, little huts or booths and they, they you know, palm branches is a, is a part of that. And they actually live out there, sit out there for a, por- a portion of time. And it's the idea of how God took them through the wilderness and, and they lived in tents, but yet whose presence was always with the Jewish people. God's was. And his tabernacle, his tent, was in their presence. This is the idea of God pitching his tent. That's like the most literal translation. Pitching his tent with his people. Dwelling with his people. So he not only says that they are before him day and night, serving him, but he lives with them. He pitches his tent with them. the idea of God being with us caring about us sharing our lives sharing eternity together again it's a beautiful picture God pitches his tent with his people verse 16 all the deprivations of this life will never plague us again Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. Remember, John is a Jew. He came from a desert land. Yeah, he, he, he is someone who, who heat and thirst is very much a part of his life. A lot of the people of the ancient world in in, in this area is certainly not the ones who necessarily lived right on the water, uh, which John kind of did at Ephesus. But those who who are are inland, some especially in kind of the southern part of the Mediterranean, it's desert. They understand what it's like to have heat beat down on you. To have to wonder where water will come from. You know, uh, one of the things Dr. Patterson points out is that there's still a lot of Christians in this world today who wonder where the next drink of water will come from, who wonder where the next meal will, will come from, who live in places where the heat bears down upon them. It seems very foreign to us when we read those descriptions. But it's not foreign even to some of our, our brothers and sisters around the world to this day. They experience this. And this would have been a common experience in the ancient world. And so the whole idea here is all the, 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 the terrible things that you face in life, the, 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 the tough parts of just daily life, where will food and water and sustenance come from, where will shelter come from, getting out of the elements, those types of things. All the things that life can throw at you in the course of a normal day will no longer plague you. Those things won't hurt you anymore. And that's what's being said about these who are before the throne. Never again, never again, hunger or thirst, the sun beating down, it will never happen again to them. And then verse 17 for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd now what a strange yet beautiful statement let me ask you a question how often do lambs do the shepherding you ever think about that when you read like a statement like that lambs are shepherded they they are not the shepherd but Jesus is depicted as a lamb, the innocence of a lamb who shed his blood, just like the lambs and, and the goats were, you know, shed their blood in, in, in the Jewish sacrificial system. But this is a different type of lamb. This is a lamb that is also the shepherd of his people. See, we're also seen as lambs. Not the lamb that died for the sins of the world, but the lambs that need a shepherd. God's people are are often depicted as as needing a shepherd. The Bible tells us that Jesus would leave the ninety and nine and go for the one, doesn't He? He's the shepherd of the lambs. And so here we have that what would seem to be a, a strange statement if it was just taken kind of on face value, but we know that Jesus is the lamb who would take away the sins of the world, that would die for, for our sins, but He is also the one who will shepherd and care for His people. He is the one who lead the lambs to water and to food and to shelter. All the things that were just promised in verse 16, that, that, that you'll never again hunger or thirst or any of these things. Why? Because the Lamb who died for you is, and shed His blood for you is the same one who is now your shepherd. And will lead you to all the things that you need. Springs of living water. The Lamb Shepherd gives them to all gives, gives all uh, that, that that is needed to his people. And the last thing we see here, it says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, there are some commentators who talk about this as tears of joy, but that does not seem to fit what is actually taking place here. More than likely, this is talking about wiping away tears of sadness. This is talking about solace. God caring for his people, taking away their tears, taking away all the things that had plagued them, Never again. Remember, these are people who came out of the tribulation. They've seen the worst that the world can show them. But now they're in the presence of God. All the things they suffered on the earth, they will never suffer again. All the needs they felt on the earth, they will never feel again. And all the pain and sadness that they felt on the earth, they will never feel again. God will wipe away all their tears. It's not just the act of wiping away the tear, but it's the idea of taking away any need for tears of pain again. All right, we're out of time. Uh, We need to close here. Thank you everybody. Um, if, you have any, you know, if, if you have any questions, anything you want to talk about, please see me later. See me after the, the, the service this morning, and I'd be glad to, to, to talk to you. Let's uh, close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word. Uh, Lord, it, it is so beautiful sometimes, and we read your Word, and we see these amazing promises that you give, the beautiful way that you describe your love for us. Uh, Father, we, we're just humble before you that you would care so much, you would die for us, you would even in the midst of, of the punishment of, of the sins of the world you show so much care for your people you give us all we need you wipe away every tear and one day we will spend every moment of eternity in the presence of God there's nothing that, that is greater than that So thank you, Father. Thank you for everything that you have done for us. Thank you for the comfort that you give us in the midst of this difficult world. And we just praise you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.